Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Prashant Faloria, CEO of Fundbox. With decades of experience in payments and monetization, he has served in a wide variety of leadership, operational, and product roles at prominent technology companies. Prashant's previous leadership roles at Funbox include Chief Operations Officer and Chief Product Officer, where he led various parts of the business, including core tech functions, product marketing, collections, support, and HR. Prior to joining Funbox, Prashant served as SVP of Advertising Products at Yahoo, Senior Director of Product Management at Facebook, and Product Director at Google. Prashant received a B.Tech in Chemical Engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi. He also holds an M.A. in Business Research, an M.S. in Statistics, a Ph.D. minor in Engineering Economic Systems and Operations Research, and a Ph.D. in Business, all from Stanford University. Today, we discuss Prashant's path to Funbox, Funbox's underwriting advantage, and the SMB recovery. We end today's session with a rapid-fire round of questions. Hope you enjoy the show! Hi, Prashant, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, we're so excited to have you here. How are you doing and where are you joining us from? Hi, Anirudh. Thanks for having me over. Super excited to be on this podcast with you. I'm joining you from, I guess, sunny Los Altos in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, just got back from the East Coast. So appreciate the, the weather that we have here in California. So many of my guests join from sunny places and I don't. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Well, um, you're at the right. The uh, you're at the right school, so <laughs> I wouldn't uh, say you're doing anything wrong there. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Uh, for the listeners who may not know, uh, could you just provide an overview of your career to date and how you got involved in fintech? Absolutely. So today I'm the CEO of Fundbox, which is a fintech playing in the B2B payments and credit space. I think of myself more as a product manager, having spent two decades of my career in Silicon Valley, initially and for a while in various product roles. I still think of myself as a product manager at heart, even though I'm a tech exec. I've spent a fair amount of time at three large consumer internet giants, Yahoo, Google, and Facebook, although not in quite the right order. And I'll explain that a little bit. I grew up as a product manager at Google, joined in the early days when the company was still quite small. Early PM on AdWords helped build out a large part of the AdWords product and then was the first product director at Google on their payments platform. So built out the, the infrastructure to move money around the world, primarily for our advertising business and then for Google Checkout. Eventually ran all of Google's products for the Asia-Pacific region and then joined Facebook as their first product director to run the ads group there. Then again, built payments, uh, the initial payments uh, platform at Facebook was the founding CEO of Facebook Payments Inc. And then uh, did a startup called Flurry in the mobile analytics software space, and which was acquired by Yahoo. So that's why I've done sort of Yahoo, Google, and Facebook, but in an unusual order. And uh, uh, left Yahoo in, and joined Funbox in 2016. I've been in Funbox ever since. Amazing. And I think you probably have a unique perspective on this next question. So a lot of the larger tech companies definitely want to get more involved with fintech, but I would say their history in the space has been a little bit rocky. Any idea on why that is and why it's not always so clear cut for them to, to enter the space? I think that financial services is a, is a domain that requires understanding, appreciation, and you need to enter into financial services with your eyes wide open and with full commitment. 
if you are a consumer technology company that has grown up as a video sharing app or distributing media, there's a very different mindset when it comes to providing those kinds of services than providing a financial service, whether it's a payment service or an insurance service or a credit service. The bar is much higher for getting it right. This is people's money you're talking about. The cost of making a mistake is very, very high. And you're working in a very regulated space. So when companies that have been successful in other domains dabble in an area like financial services, but under even things like health tech, for example, they often fail because they don't have the appreciation or the commitment to participate in that market, in that space, in a way that befits that space. And on the flip side, I'm sure there were some very great skills you picked up uh, with these tech companies that helped you uh, are helping you in your role as CEO of Funbox. Um, any particular skills that you that you really value that you picked up? I think that working as a product manager is is great training ground for someone who's looking to run a business or be a CEO. There are many, many reasons why product management is great training ground, especially for leaders in tech. And a lot of folks have talked about the fact that you're the CEO of the product. There's also this aspect of driving cross-functional teams and leading cross-functional efforts to drive the success of, of a product. I think one thing that folks sometimes oversee is the leadership training that you get when you have to influence a number of people who don't report to you and yet you're leading them. So as a product manager, the engineers don't report to you. The salespeople don't report to you. The marketing folks don't report to you. You have very little formal authority over them. However, if you have clear thinking, if you're able to communicate your ideas and your vision effectively, you can get a lot of people excited about working on your product or project. And so that discipline that comes from having to influence and lead without formal authority keeps you on your toes as a leader. And I think that is another reason why product functions tend to generate, uh, that they're, they're great experiences for, for leadership in tech. That's amazing. And we'll, we'll talk more about Funbox in a second, but I quickly just wanted to ask, uh, I saw you're a guest lecturer at Stanford. Uh, what kind of courses do you teach there? Yeah, so a little bit of a background. I think a B-School uh, student might find it interesting. I joined Stanford in the PhD program, the business school at the PhD program, with the goal of becoming an academic. So my goal in life at that time, 25 years ago, was to be a business school professor. Somewhere along the way, I realized that I loved the research, but it was a bit of a lonely job. And I really wanted to work very closely with other people in teams and decided that rather than becoming a B-School academic, I would go and become a product manager and get into tech. And it was great. I've never looked back. But I've always had this soft spot for teaching. And so when I had the opportunity to teach a short course at Stanford, I did that. I still guest lecture at Stanford uh, today. I also teach this course occasionally at Cornell and Berkeley. So I know all those three are the wrong business schools. I should really be at Wharton. But, uh, but I do teach this short course. Then the course is on building consumer internet businesses. So it's really crystallizing a lot of the lessons that I've learned at companies like Google and Facebook, uh, lessons around growth, user acquisition and retention, engagement, and monetization, as well as platforms. So it's it's a series of, of packaged 
case studies and lectures and, and examples and discussions that really bring to life a few key principles that I, I like to share with, with my students. Yeah, I know, I know quite a few students that would love to take that course uh, if you uh, did ever decide to, to teach it over here at Wharton. I think it will go over quite well. Okay, so switching to Funbox, I would love to talk about how you decided to come and join the company. Yeah, When I uh, left Yahoo, I took some time off to think about what to do next. And I was thinking about a few things and all of those those things tend uh, just came together very very well in terms of Funbox uh, when I saw Funbox. I really wanted to work with a great team. I think first, second, and third, I think is always the team, the people you're working with. Uh, and in Funbox, I saw an amazing team, very small at that time, but a team that was not only had a lot of smart people, but also like worked together really well. In addition, I did see the mission of the company, which is around helping the small business economy. And that just seemed very real and very tangible. I spent a lot of time building products for marketers and for advertisers. And that's that's a noble occupation too. But I was a little bit tired of serving the office of the CMO, if you will, through advertising products. And I really got excited about this opportunity to serve a large part of our economy and our society. And then the third thing that just drew me to Funbox was just the technology and the product that had already been built. It was very clear to me that this was the found this was the foundation of a very successful business, and that's what uh, got me uh, into Funbox, and that's what keeps me here even today. It's the team, it's the mission, and it's uh, the products that we build and and use to serve our customers. And can you expand more on the products? Uh, what different products you offer, SMBs, and where you feel Funbox has an advantage uh, in underwriting and in B two B lending? So Funbox is a financial platform and with a focus on capital and actually working capital. Our flagship product and offering is a very flexible, revolving line of credit that you can quickly access as a small business owner, either directly on our website or on your mobile app, or embedded in the experiences of our partners like QuickBooks or FreshBooks or Synchrony Bank and a variety of other partners. Uh, we also offer other products like term loans, as well as a relatively new payments offering called FlexPay, which is a way for customers to better manage their payables. All of these products are unified by a few things. One is we've built them to solve very specific pain points that customers have, and our customers are small business owners. And I'm talking the small end of small businesses, sole proprietors, maybe up to a few dozen employees a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue to maybe a few million dollars in revenue. This is the part of the the SMB economy that has been the most overlooked by traditional players. We also have very significant application of AI in all of our products because a lot of what we do is measure and assess risk and through a robust assessment of risk, be able to provide a superior service to our customers. And all of this is all oriented around helping our customers manage their businesses better, make better financial decisions, have managed their working capital better, and so on. Because what I've found as, as I've talked to a lot of our customers, and not to stereotype the small business owner, but I found that our small business owners tend to fall into one of two categories. There's some, and that's the minority, who are deep into the numbers and they love the financial aspects of their business. And then there are others who love the craft and the thing they hate the most about running a small business 
is the money part. And so in our goal is to be able to help all small business owners, but especially those that want to be able to focus on running and growing their business by giving them financial products that, that are there for them, giving them flexibility and, and peace of mind as they focus on running and growing their businesses. Yeah, I think you very succinctly summarized what uh, a lot of people uh, are excited about with fintech, which is for people who don't like the numbers but love the craft, uh, how can we make life easier? Uh, so love, love to hear that. And the people who you like the numbers you- probably end up at Wharton studying finance anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm definitely surrounded by a few a few of us, yeah. You mentioned taking over in an attempt to help small businesses, and you took over in a very difficult time in the world and in the U.S. economy, uh, that being during the pandemic. What were some of the harder and more pressing challenges facing you when you took over as CEO of Fundbox? So I joined Fundbox in, in 2016 uh, to run product and tech. And over time, took on more and more responsibilities and started making the transition to CEO in 2019. And uh, we, uh, we announced the transition more formally in 2020, right, right during you know, the depths of COVID. And so in some ways, uh, the transition was a little more gradual because I'd, we had been building up to it. And I think there's a, there's a very useful lesson here, I think, for folks around succession management in some ways. Eyal Chinar, I think who's been on this podcast before, who's a Wharton alum, who's the founder and former CEO of, of the company, and I had been working very closely together and sort of gradually transitioning responsibilities such that the actual formal CEO announcement was like a non-event in some ways, which is, I think, a good model for, for transitions. That said, we did transition formally at a time, as you said, and a difficult time in, in the economy and in the world. I think we had to make some difficult decisions. I think the first one was, do we continue originating funds to our customers? And the decision we made was, while we would take our foot off the pedal in terms of new customer acquisition, we absolutely wanted to do whatever we could do to continue serving our our existing customers. And that was a bit of a bet. It was a bet that our models that we had spent so much time, all the machine learning investment that we had made would would work well in assessing risk. It was a bet that our customers would would work well with us. And that proved out to be true. And it turned out to be a very fortuitous bet because our models did an excellent job of predicting risk and we found different levels of stress in different kinds of customers. But equally importantly, customers who'd been with us for many years really wanted to continue using Funbox and so were able to work with us in terms of continuing that relationship. But that wasn't the only bet that we had to make. Our core business was doing well, and so we had to decide how much we wanted to do other things like participate in the PPP or the Paycheck Protection Program that was being run by the Small Business Administration. And there were a lot of companies that spent that, that went very big into PPP because that was sort of the only source of revenue at that time. And also, there were companies that perhaps cut a few corners in terms of working on the program. And we decided to, to, to participate, but again, focus more on our existing customers and be very disciplined in terms of how we were distributing government funds to our customers. So as a result, I think we had very low levels of fraud, and we've been very responsible on that front. I think the other thing that we did, which is also painful, was 
we put the pause on some of our new product efforts in those six months where we were not sure where the world was going to go. It hurt, but we believe that first and foremost, we had to do the right thing by our company and by our employees, investors, and then you know, be in a better place to, to grow. I think the, the good thing is that those decisions that we took really led to great upside because as the economy started opening up, up again in, the Q, in Q4 of last year, we were able to start growing and restart our customer acquisition efforts and so on to the place where in, in today, you know, a year later, the business is doing incredibly strongly. We, we've been growing at a very, very fast rate at a much on a much larger base. And we're entering, we'll have a banner 2021 and we're entering 2022 with great momentum as well. But, but a lot of those, those decisions we made in the middle of 2020 helped us get set. So the defense that we played for about six months helped us be ready for like a more of an offense play in terms of aggressively going after market share and, and growth today. And you mentioned briefly that the U.S. Uh, recovery, particularly in Q4 of last year, uh, how has the SMB recovery looked like for you overall? Uh, better or worse than expected? Yeah. Is are there variations across different sectors or anything like that? I think recovery has been varied uh, across segments or verticals. We do a lot of B two B, so about seventy five percent of our customer base is B two B in nature. So let me just elaborate on that. When people think small business, they very often think about B2C small businesses, like the restaurant around the corner, SMBs that serve consumers, because people are consumers first and foremost. But it turns out that two-thirds of the 30 million SMBs in the US are actually B2B in nature. So for every restaurant, you've got people supplying food from the farm to the table, all or uh, cleaning or staffing services and so on. So we see a lot of B2B, we see some B2C as well. I think in general, B2B businesses did show strength during the pandemic. And uh, verticals like construction, are not, uh, we see them as being above pre-pandemic levels, so roughly 10% above pre-pandemic levels in terms of invoicing activity and other economic indicators. Transportation, warehousing, similarly, are up pre-pandemic, again, 8% or so. We also see, we also have a bunch of professional services that are B2B in nature, like advertising or legal firms, accounting firms and design firms. I think they're at least at pre-pandemic levels, if not higher. But we have seen B2C verticals being hit pretty hard. Obviously, food and accommodation down 15% from before the pandemic. Retail, we have a little bit of retail down 24%. And there are a few B2B uh, verticals that have been affected too. I think manufacturing and wholesale could be uh, because of supply chain disruptions, but down 40, you know, 43%. And, you know, one, uh, another example of, of a B2B service, which has been down is really more administrative services and like in commercial buildings, it's a tough sector when everyone's working from home, like that's down over 20%. So the recovery in the economy is not uniform. I think could we know that it does vary quite significantly by sector, B2B overall doing better than B2C. But even within B2B, that there, there is a fair amount of variation. And for companies that, that did weather the storm well, did you find that they had certain trends in cash management or certain best practices that they followed? Or is it really you know, predominantly driven by which sector they were in? I think that we did see, first and foremost, the, the impact of sector. 
being quite important. I don't think you can downplay that. If you're a restaurant owner in the middle of the pandemic and in the early days, like that would have hit you very badly. We did see a fairly close relationship between what our models would predict in terms of levels of risk and the impact on those businesses. So our machine learning models create scores for different kinds of scores for our customers. And we use that as a measure of risk. Now, of course, systematic risk went up, right? Obviously, we also saw segment-specific risk go up, vertical-specific risk go up. But within any particular segment, our models did a very good job of ranking the ranking customers by risk. And I think, so it does go back to things like cash flow volatility, especially in B2B, uh, levels of concentration, revenue concentration in your customer base, the amount of cash you have on hand, your working capital versus your inflows and outflows. So I do think, at least based on what we saw in our data and how we saw our models performed, that there was there's obviously a systematic, systemic change in risk. But some of the same factors that would drive a company or a business to be a lower risk business uh, also helped during, during COVID. And you mentioned uh, putting a pause on some of the product efforts uh, that that Funbox had, um, you know, in summer of 2020. Uh, would love to hear what the next few months uh, are going to look like for Funbox. Uh, if you're able to kind of have, if you have a backlog of these product efforts that you're hoping to launch uh, over the next few months. Yeah, we've 2021 has has been incredible in terms of uh, launching new things and uh, launching new products. We we launched a new term loan product earlier this year. But I think what I'm really excited about is a product called FlexPay that I've mentioned earlier. What we found is that for most of our customers, especially in B2B, a big source of anxiety is having to make critical business payments like payroll or buying inventory or paying your leads. And most often than not, when these critical business payments come up, it's not a question of whether you will ever have the money to pay that but a question of timing. So it's Friday afternoon. I need to run payroll. I run payroll every week. Now, I do not know if I have enough money in my account that I used to run payroll today. I know I'll have money on Tuesday when Anirudh's check clears, but it's not there today. So oftentimes, business owners have to do things like drive across town to pick up a check or move money between accounts and things like that. And so We've started giving our customers a Fundbox-issued bank account to help them with these critical business payments, and that we call that FlexPay. And so all you do is continue using the same payroll service or the same bill pay service that you're using. It could be your Gusto or your ADP on the one hand, your Bill.com or whatever you're using on the other, or maybe even your your Venmo that you're using for for business-to-business payments, but use a Fundbox-issued bank account. And what we do is when our customer, for example, makes that payroll run, that transaction comes to us. And because we have full visibility into the customer's financials and what's happening in, into their business transactions, we can make sure that the payroll always happens on time. And then we turn around and give the customer some flexibility in how they want to fund that payroll. So this is really a way to just ease the entire payables part of our customers' lives. And we're already seeing that our customers are putting you know, over half of their business expenses on FlexPay, the customers that have that are up and running on the product. And so we're very excited because we're solving a key customer pain point. We're driving great engagement. The average Fundbox customer uses the product uh, about nine times 
a year, so our line of credit. But with FlexPay, they're using us 10 times a month. So almost 100x increase in the level of engagement. But then also, I think, and perhaps uh, equally importantly, we're driving more more embedded, longer-term relationships with our customers because once you're using our bank account or making your critical business payments, there's more and more that you can do with Fundbox. And there's an entire roadmap of things that we want to offer on top of FlexPay that we will be bringing out over the next few months. So very excited about that. And we have a number of other in payment initiatives that are sort of on the back of FlexPay that we we we're bring, we'll bring out over the next over the next year. And zooming out a bit, what overall trends in the fintech industry are you most excited about for the next three to five years? I think there's a lot of excitement, a lot of exciting things happening in the world of fintech, and there will be a lot of areas that will be disrupted. There'll be hype. There'll be corrections, further disruptions. I think the next decade is going to be so, so interesting for fintech. And the way I think about it, and I talk about this in my class a little bit also, shameless plug, I think the internet started off by disrupting or by transforming industries that were mostly informational, information only, like media, like communication. And so when you go back over the last 10, 20 years, a lot of the, the transformative companies were like Google with search or or maybe Facebook with, with communication. But I think as, as the internet and internet technologies have become sort of more, more entrenched, you, over the last five to 10 years, you've started seeing the disruptions in other areas, whether it's education or whether actually it's healthcare or even financial services. So I think we're still in the early innings. I think there's a lot more that's going to happen than has happened over the past decade in the world of financial services. And some of the trends that, that I, I think are, are really exciting are the simplification of financial services with the end user in mind. I think that a lot of traditional financial institutions have, have said, I have a bank account, you can have one. I have a loan, you can have one. Or I have some other financial product, there, take it. But from a customer's perspective, the product is not that important. I think what's more important is the problem they are trying to solve. So for example, if I needed to, going back to our payroll example, bridge my working capital from a payroll event on Friday to getting paid by Anirudh on Tuesday, taking a term loan is not the right solution for that problem. And so too often, I think traditional financial institutions have taken whatever products they had and try to just jam them into their customer base. But I think that the change here has been redesigning financial products with the customer in mind and starting with. I think that's, in some ways, the biggest and the most exciting thing. And there are all of these spillover effects. Like, for example, hey, we might embed the financial service in, you know, in some workflow. Like, for example, if you're signing up for payroll uh, or with a payroll provider, well, now might be a good time to buy payroll insurance. Or in the case of Fundbox, if I'm sitting in my QuickBooks and I'm looking at the invoice I just sent to Anirudh, I know he's going to pay me, but it's going to come 45 days later. Can I advance working capital against that invoice using, using Fundbox? So I think even embedded finance, if you will, is sort of a byproduct of that. I think all the advances in AI and the applications of AI, again, go towards serving the same problem, which is how do you serve the customer better? So I think there, there are many, many things that are really exciting. And I think we're still in, in the very early stages of evolution. 
I, I will say, again, another shameless plug is that the, the world of consumer finance has been evolving for some time now, whether it's you know, and even in the world of small businesses, B2C has been, has been a little bit further ahead, partly because a lot of entrepreneurs think of B2C businesses and think small business. When Square was formed, it was because the founder couldn't buy a work of art at a fair uh, because the, the artist couldn't accept a credit card. And again, classic B2C thing. But I think B2B is now getting digitalized. It's B2B in some ways is lagging B2C by five or 10 years. But that trend is that that change is happening, perhaps accelerated by COVID. So businesses like a law firm or a small manufacturer that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being online and digital are getting there. And I think that just means a lot of opportunity in this broad space of people that serve B2B small businesses. Thank you, Prashant. That was uh, an incredible answer. Uh, and you have me even more excited about the future of fintech than I was before. Um, switching gears now, I wanted to enter the rapid fire round of our conversation. Uh, we're hoping to get answers here in 10 seconds or less. Uh, are you ready to go? 10 seconds or less. Wow, that's a challenge. But uh, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know about? I was born in a Muslim country, Iraq. I'm a Hindu by religion. I went to a Catholic school, and now I work with a number of Jewish people. What is your favorite hobby? I love playing guitar. I consider myself a semi-professional guitar player, and that's one thing I can't get enough of. Nice. What tech product uh, can you not live without? It's actually not my phone. It's my MacBook Pro. Uh, what is your favorite drink? A protein shake. <laughs> Um, what interview question do you always like to ask? If there's one thing you wanted to tell our audience, what would that be? Uh, Prashant, if there's one thing you wanted to tell our audience, what would that be? You can have it all, just not all at the same time. Amazing. Uh, and last question, you can take a little bit longer on this one. Uh, what does success look like for you and for Funbox? For me, it's all about helping Funbox achieve the full potential of the company. And I think about that in terms of our mission of helping the small business economy and unlocking growth for hopefully millions of small businesses around the world one day. And when we can do that, I would consider ourselves some successful or on the path to success. That's incredible. And I think that's, that's probably a good place to wrap it up for today. Um, so thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, it was great talking to you. Great to hear about uh, your experiences. And yeah, thank you again so much. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Wharton FinTech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.